Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, my company, Aloha.agency. It is a company that will give you the tools you need to smoke your competition, whoever they might be. Are you trying to do some sort of nonprofit? Then you'll be the nonprofitiest nonprofit that ever nonprofited. Are you trying to e-commerce? Then you're going to sell more e-commerce than any e-commerce competitor that's e-commercing. Are you building education platforms to teach inner city youth entrepreneurship? Then you're going to have the best darned LMS and education platform that exists. If you want to smoke your competition and leave them in the dust wondering how you did it, the secret is right here. It's aloha.agency, A-L-O-A.agency. My name is Lynn Kaiser, and I beat the often path by um, changing the way we create physical things. Joining us right now, everybody, Lynn Kaiser, the co-founder of Leap 71 and many other ventures. So there are so many interesting parts of your story that we could start. From the beginning, you started coding at the age of eight. I had a similar arc myself. I began coding when I was in middle school. I was making uh, assembly games for my TI calculator and then started okay. websites. And then now I have a digital marketing agency. So I think part of our story begins in a similar way. And then it's diverged quite a lot in the last few decades of your life. So let's talk about where do we begin in your career? You were a graphic designer for hire at some point. You had a service business and then everything radically changed okay. from there. So how did your career begin and why did you get on the path that you're on now? as strange as it is. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> funny enough, I also started uh, coding with a TI-66 calculator. So, you know, it's, it's That's even incredible. more... <laughs> See, for you. me, it was 86, so it was just a few generations later. But, okay. yes, that's awesome. It dates me, I think. Um, yeah. Only by a few years. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, until, you know even, even at a very early age, I thought I would become an entrepreneur. The, the thing is, of course, as a kid, you have no clue what that is. You know, I just knew that my uncle was one. So um, my uncle Lutz Kaiser started the first private space company in the 1970s, which is a, it's a completely ridiculous story. And I didn't meet him often, but whenever I met him, you know, he had an amazing impression, made an amazing impression on me. Uh, you know, one of the impressions was that he handed me a Computer magazine, Byte magazine. You know, one the, I think it was the first computer magazine in the world. He gave that to me and said, "Lynn, read this. This is important." And I tried to, you know, decipher it with my, you know, you know middle school English. So it was was quite interesting. Mm. But yeah, <clears throat> so that put me on the path on doing something with computers. But funnily enough, I always thought computers is for fun. I never thought that this would be my career. But, uh, you know, shortly after school, a startup, you know, nobody knew what a startup was in the 1990s, was looking for programmers. And I said, oh, that's maybe something I can do before, um, you know, I go and, and study at university. And that sucked me in. And uh, I was doing this for, for seven years then. And uh, it was an amazing experience right out of school, my early 20s, you know, um, working like crazy, like we hear all the stories, but this is the early 1990s. So in Germany, I was in Germany back then, nobody knew what a startup was. Nobody started a startup. And I had happened to you know, find the only guys <clears throat> in the region where I was that actually started a startup. So for seven years, I built industrial control systems. Now, that sounds very technical, 
And uh, it was actually quite fun. So we controlled big industrial machines, printing presses and CNC mills and stuff like that. And so I got onto this startup thing very early. And then I started my own company. And that was completely funny because I had nothing to do with what I did before. Mm. So um, because we were using regular PCs to control industrial machines, we could do all kinds of interesting things. For example, play animations and do touch screens. Again, this is the 1990s, so yeah, really early. And one of the things that we needed in order to do that is uh, to play little animations to instruct people. And I wrote a little tool to uh, playback animations. And um, that was the end of the 1990s. So the first websites you know, started appearing. Yeah. And I registered a website name. I had no idea what to do with it. So most people, when they want to start a company, they have a business plan and an idea and all of this stuff. I didn't. I had an idea. I had an idea for a name. I called it Iridas and I didn't know what it was. And I registered iridas.com. And then <clears throat> one day I said, okay, this little tool that I wrote, you know, maybe I put it on my website. And so maybe somebody else can use it. And a few months later, the guy, a friend of mine who was hosting my website, calls me and says, Lynn, we have to talk about money now. I was like, okay. really what's going on? Why? Yeah. Nothing on my website. So no, no, there's this file on your website and 5,000 people downloaded and it's causing so much traffic. It's costing me, costing me tons of money. Like, who's downloading this stuff? And so I have some people from California. Like, I don't it's, know anybody in California. Yeah. So I put this up... This story gets crazy. I think I know where this is headed, but unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, go on. I put up an email address because I didn't... I mean, you could literally not contact me. And then people from Hollywood studios started contacting me and say, yeah, this, this tool that you wrote, by the way, you know, it's the only thing that exists that plays back digital media. So it was, was, I mean, you have to think, you know, this was the time when web video was like little, little post Right, tiny little squares. I was, yep. yeah, exactly. I was playing back high-resolution HD video <clears throat> and a little wow. software. And I said, we need that for digital cinema. Yeah, I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying... I ended up uh, powering the first digital cinemas in the world <laughs> out of my German living room. And uh, yeah, I built a, built a very successful business out of that. So yeah, first first large installation was for the Matrix sequels. I was going to say, yeah. the Matrix, the Wachowski, then Wachowski yeah. brothers. What yeah. an incredible claim to fame. Yeah. All by accident. Completely. I did not plan this okay. at all. Like I said, I had a name, but I had no idea what it me- meant and what company it would be. And I sold that to Adobe in uh, 2011 and then, yeah, did other stuff. But yeah, so, so that, that was kind of, you know, roller coaster ride. So did that tip so, you off then to the world of software as a new business? Maybe before that yeah. you were in a service kind of business and then did that switch your brain to thinking maybe software is the future or... What what insight did you gain from that? Now, funnily enough, after that, I did a hardware startup. So I okay. thought maybe underwater robotics would be a fun thing. Yeah. Because I was always fascinated with the ocean and uh, Jacques Cousteau movies and all of this stuff. But then, you know, like you said, the business side is also important. I couldn't couldn't figure out how to make a business out of that. So it's cool. You know, you have all these robots and you know stuff and it dives underwater. But I did one thing. 
So that was 2014. I got out of, out of uh, Adobe. And uh, that was the time when 3D printing became quite interesting. And I bought a 3D printer to do prototypes. And very quickly, I realized, wait a second. This is um, a new way to manufacture things that has not existed before. It's very easy to build very complex things. Yeah. And that led me down into this rabbit hole where I said, you know, hold on, wait a second. Before you dive into your next startup, maybe you ask yourself, what is the one thing that um, annoys you about the current state of the world? And, you know, I mean, obviously you're also a child of information technology. And information technology, I mean, from the 1980s to the 2000s, I mean, it was an amazing ride. I mean, you would never use a computer from back then. I mean, my first computer, again, was a TI-66 with 512 programming steps. Yeah. My first real computer had 40 kilobytes of available memory and uh, you know, a very low-resolution display. And now we had the internet and you know, all of those things. And my assumption was everything progresses on that you know, exponential scale. Yeah. But it's actually not true. So most of the things don't progress like that at all. So if you look at the physical world, uh, most of the things actually have stayed quite similar. I mean, they're building a building. I mean, we're in Dubai here. So, uh, of course, they're building a skyscraper next to my window. Right, but if right you look in front of at me. the construction site, my God, you know, this is so manual. This is unbelievable. If you look at a car today, maybe with the exception of a Tesla, I mean, they look like the cars 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. You would not hesitate to drive a car that's 40 years old. You would no. very much hesitate to use a cell phone from 30 years ago <laughs> or a computer from 40 years ago. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the question was, why is that stuff so slow? And is there maybe a different way to do these things? And that led me to my new idea. I said, you know, maybe 3D printing, building things additively, you know, putting molecules in place like nature does, right? Nature builds things additively, grows things. Maybe that's, that's an interesting path. I created a new company mm. called Hyperganic. And the idea was to use 3D printing to build extremely complex physical objects to kind of replicate what we have seen in the information technology world. And um, yeah, that, 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 that was a lot of fun. And um, we built some of the most complex machines that, that exist. Dang. Um, and, and when I say 3D printing, most people think of little plastic parts. But 3D right. printing today is, of course, you know, I mean, metal, ceramics, glass, yeah. uh, high-performance polymers, etc. So you can build almost anything with a 3D printer, with an industrial 3D printer. And, of course, in aerospace, it is, um, it is very much used. So almost every rocket engine that you uh, that's flying into space right now is, is, has 3D printed parts or is entirely 3D printed. There's actually one company, Relativity Space, 
essentially 3D prints the entire rocket. Wow. So, so that's that's my journey right now. That I think. Um, I mean, you said you're. How did you say a recovering pessimist or something like that? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm actually going to rename the show, but yes, something like that. Yeah. So, so you know, engineering has not really changed in hundreds, maybe thousands of years. So if you think about it, you know, a, a Roman engineer sat down and drew an aqueduct on a, on a piece of paper and then walked over to the guy who needs to build it and they looked at the paper and said, okay, you know, I'm going to build you an aqueduct. And this is how we still build and engineer things today. So we, we basically draw things. Right? I mean, back then they used pen and paper or whatever, charcoal or whatever they had, right? Yeah. Today you use a computer, but you still draw things. And there's this genius engineer who visually crafts something on screen. And it's all in their heads. And they draw all these things. And then they have a 3D model. And then, you know, somebody else needs to build it. Yeah. And I ask myself, you know, can we not do this with software? Can we not transcribe the knowledge of the engineers into computational models, into AI? And so what I'm doing now with my partner, Josephine, is um, we're building computational engineering models that basically transcribe the knowledge of engineers into software. And then the software can build extremely complex objects. So we are, we are going one step beyond what was hyperganic, you know, the previous company that I did eight years for eight years. And now we are applying that technology to build amazing things. And we work in electric mobility and in spacecraft and lots of things. But we are a two-person team, so it's really funny because my last company had 80 people. And now we are it's just me and my partner in life and business doing this together. But we are um, we're having so much fun. <laughs> well, that in itself is an interesting story. I thought you were going to say when you talked about the underwater parts that you built that and then James Cameron called you for a little movie called Titanic. <laughs> Maybe you just have that kind of luck in your life. No, <laughs> you're just no, born to be in Hollywood. I, I do do know quite a few people who work very closely with Jim Cameron. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah. you you think you're just working on all of these things and Hollywood is just tracking you down and trying to get your knowledge, which is which is quite an unusual story. Um only it's kidding, actually a, a different story. So, you know, for visual effects, you need mm. um, software that renders clouds and you know all of these things. So, yeah, and we use the same technology as the basis for our computational model. We literally use so there's there's a software foundation from the Academy of of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists sciences and they have built this very sophisticated software framework, and we actually use that to build rocket engines like literal physical rocket engines. So it's it's really hilarious. So it's like coming full circle in a way. What's the name of that framework? Uh, it's called OpenVDB. So OpenVDB, okay. Yeah. So, it's an so yeah, framework. I guess that's just an, an interesting, it, it points out that, you know, I guess there's just a tie-in between people who are conceptualizing a better world in the physical space and people who are pushing boundaries in the art space. So it sort of just hints that there is yeah. a perpetual tie-in of these two seemingly unrelated fields, which is fascinating. Um, uh, and, you, and okay, and, and, I, I do think it's very. 
Yeah. And wouldn't it be cool? So, I mean, we all grew up with science fiction, right? Yes. Wouldn't it be cool if you could actually build these things? Yes. And, and I think we can. I mean, they're going to be constrained by actual physical laws and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the stuff that we built, I mean, it starts looking, looking like, like science fiction movies, you know, because you, you can, I mean, because it's, it's mostly additive, we, we also use other processes, but because it's mostly 3D printing, you can grow amazing shapes that look completely out of this world. Well, that's where my head's always been at. I mean, from Blade Runner on, I love thinking about the future and the way people visualize that future. And of course, making science fiction reality is a large part of why I now consider myself to be a recovering pessimist. I've been pretty pessimistic about the state of, of humanity, but talking to people such as yourself, I mean, obviously it's incredibly encouraging and motivating to talk to smart people who are working on our most pressing issues, which I just find endlessly fascinating. And also the rise of technology along with the rise of our problems as a species is a very interesting, I always yeah. think, you know, who's going to get there first? Will we technologically weasel our way out of some of these problems or, or not um, as we continue to grow and as we continue to use the resources on our planet? But one of these things that I, I would like to convey for the people who are listening and who aren't watching is the complexity and some of the, the the radicalness of some of the designs on your website on the Leap 71. Uh, parts that are confusing and that don't appear to have a logical function, which I assume is kind of the hallmark of the new world that we're entering into, where we don't necessarily understand how things work or why they work. So talk to me about the need for some of these insanely complex bits of modeling or engineering that maybe even a person couldn't conceptualize with pen and paper or papyrus and a yeah <laughs> exactly whatever they had yeah i mean if you think about the pinnacle of engineering in a way um that's nature right i mean I completely I agree here, you know they are the most complex objects in this building i mean it's it's sorry to all engineers in the world but yeah you know the potted Pales plant in comparison potted plant on your desk, you know, outperforms anything that you've created as a machine. So, you know, um, we don't do complexity because it needs to be complex. It's just that we humans usually build very simple things because, as you said, we cannot conceptualize them with pen and paper or with a visual process in the computer. So um, even simple computer algorithms can create incredibly complex results. Yeah. And these complex results perform better than traditionally engineered things. They are lighter, they have a higher surface area, which is amazing, for example, when you want to build a heat exchanger for an air conditioning unit, for example. So, um, you know, just by applying relatively simple algorithms, you can build extremely complex and sophisticated machines. And the good thing is, you know, 3D printing allows us to print these things and we can try them out, and they actually do perform better. So um, you said something, though, and I want to push back a little bit on that. Sure. I think most people think um, that in an age of AI, we humans are relegated to some kind of observer post, and yeah. we don't understand what's going on. So our approach is quite the opposite. So we try to build our computational knowledge 
uh, computational models on the knowledge of engineers that exist. And so we understand very clearly the rules and the laws that go into this thing. And the power of the computational approach and the artificial intelligence approach is to test many, many different variants that an engineer would never be able to build on their own, I mean, let alone the complexity, but just creating lots of different variants and then exploring this design space and finding out what works and what doesn't work. But you can always go back to the rules in the source code and it explains to you how it works. So um, large language models, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I think the designers of large language models like ChatGPT, they kind of understand how it works, but it's, it's in a way it's magic, right? But large yeah, language- Sort of, right? Yeah, but large language models, they have been trained on many, many billion lines of source code. So they can actually also write code. And we actually use that. I mean, it's amazing. If you need a solution that has been done before, you can ask ChatGPT, you know, please give me the algorithm for it. And it spits out the code in the programming language that you need, etc. Um, however, you can still read the code. You can still see what it does. And, you know, quite frequently, at least today, the code is wrong. So you can see mm. that's bullshit. Oh, that's, mm -hmm. yeah. So we are kind of on the same page. So we build things that um, can be understood, but they are more complex than um, somebody would usually do it if they would do it on their own. And we can test out many, many different variants. And if you think about it, now, how do you invent something new? You invent something new if you try something that has not been done before. Now, if it's a sophisticated machine and has not been done before, you're in for a lot of pain because if that thing doesn't work and it's very likely that it doesn't work, you, know, you have to do the whole thing again and again and again. And at some point, your boss comes and fires you. So this is why um, engineering is usually very slow and very conservative. It has to be because it's so much work. Yeah. But if yeah. you can encode this into a model, then you can play around with it. Can you imagine being playful with engineering, just testing out, oh, this looks interesting. Let's, let's see where this goes. And that's what we do. And, um, and it's amazing where you end up because you, you try out things that you know, no engineer in their right mind would ever do because, yeah, I mean, it's very likely that it doesn't work. Oh, it works. Now that's fun. Let's try a little bit more of that. So this is this is really the interesting aspect of this, and this this leads to breakthroughs and innovation. And this is, you know, you said uh, who's going to win? You know, the the problems in the world or you know society. I mean, we humans are pretty good at out innovating problems, and I think we can do that because we have these tools now. But it's not a foregone conclusion. I think it's, it's, it's extremely important that young people feel empowered to actually try out these crazy new things. I mean, I had the big fortune that, I mean, my uncle was a complete insane person. I mean, he, he said, you know, at a time when only governments launched satellites into space. He said, oh, yeah, I can do this too. 
And he, he, I mean, it's an amazing story. They made an entire documentary about it. And um, that was a huge inspiration to me personally. So for me, it was always like, yeah, okay, you know, why not? And then, you know, this early experience in a startup where these guys were breaking all the rules and, and, and said, okay, let's, let's do something that, uh, I mean, literally we were at, I was, I was a tra at a trade show and, and um, professors would walk up to me and shout at me and say, this is ridiculous, this cannot work, you know, this is, you know, if this, if this were a good idea, somebody else would have done it already, you know, so all the, the stuff that you specifically hear in Germany, but of course, you know, every startup here is everywhere in the world. So that was a very, very early experience for me. And, you know, our stuff worked. So, you know, it, it kind of gave me that, that trust in a way that, you know, even when everybody says you have, you have no clue what you're doing, that you may be onto something and you know, just have to persevere. And that, by the way, is one of the biggest challenges as, as a deep tech, you know, new idea entrepreneur that everybody is telling you that that is nonsense and the problem is maybe they are right right <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe that's, that's nonsense what you're trying to do i mean who are, who are you you know when all these professors walk around and tell you you know say yeah, yeah we tried this this never works um, and um, but uh, yeah i mean there was a time when it was clear that a rocket cannot land backwards flying backwards from space and land on a drone ship. It's impossible, and, yeah. And some crazy guy tried it, and it didn't work the, the first <laughs> couple of times, and then all of a sudden it worked, right? So <laughs> I think you know, we need more people to try out stuff that has not been done before, and then I think we can solve it. Yeah? Well, that's a refreshing take. So when those in those moments when you might have doubted yourself, how did you realize that you could keep going? Or how did you know that you were on to something? Why didn't you just say, okay, you're right, I quit? I don't know. Uh, that's a very good question. So I had many, many of these situations in my life, you know, where you literally didn't know where the money would come from, you know, the next week, you know, let alone the next month. Um and everybody tells you, no, the stupid, or you're, you're 20 years too early, or whatever, right? Nothing helpful. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I have, I have a couple of things that I do. So, number one is, I think I'm. So, so, so I come from, a, so my uncle was this crazy entrepreneur, you know, and, uh, you know, flew around in a Learjet, but my family was actually very humble. So my dad was a painter and sculptor. And the problem is with uh, becoming a painter and sculptor is that it doesn't come with a paycheck. And, you know, most painters, at least, you know, back then, uh, became very rich when they were dead because they <laughs> right. were something. So <laughs> we had about the same situation. So, so, but I never felt like we were poor or anything. You know, it was just you know, you know, everything was um, you know, and so I don't need much to be happy, and you know, um, I'm very comfortable with. Um, having limited resources. 
And, you know, for, for I mean, I, many times in my life when I had almost unlimited resources, when I sold my company to Adobe, and you have this funny thing that, you know, you spend money and it doesn't make any difference in your bank account because the sums are too small compared to the sum you have. So, interesting thing. Um, has its own problems because you're spending money in, in a way that is sometimes not sustainable. Sure. But um, because I'm comfortable with, you know, living a simple life for quite a while, you know, I'm not afraid of it. So, you know, I, I think, you know, reasonably smart. So, you know, I will not starve. Um, so I don't see risk where other people see a lot of risk. Fascinating. And um, the other thing I think has always been very clear to me. My, my father died very early. Um, I mean, it's, it's completely ridiculous in trying to maximize your wealth in a way. So it's, it's absolutely great to have money, to have resources, to do things, you know, do the things that you want to do. And you know, this is great. But um, if at the end of your life, you know, it, it makes absolutely no difference to you personally how much money you have in the bank account. So <clears throat> the biggest risk that I see for me personally is that I don't do the things that I could do if I took these risks. And so this combined with a bit of a track record that you get after a while, that you're not complete, I mean, I'm usually not completely wrong. I mean, sometimes, you know, I have, haven't found the right direction by a few degrees, but it's not like I'm 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Now, it's very rarely that I bet on something that is completely stupid because I think these things through. And I think, generally speaking, the biggest risk to any company or idea or whatever you pursue is not that it's the wrong idea, is that, that you lose faith and you, you, you stop because you, it's, the, the obstacle seems insurmountable. And if there's one thing I really learned is that when you think it, there's no way it can't go on, Yeah, it, it's, it's, you're at the hard stop. You're out of money. You're out of resources. Everybody hates you. Interestingly, it still works. I mean, you, you can still go the next step and the next step and the next step. And all of a sudden, you're across the hill and things start looking better and accelerating again. And I've seen that so many times that I think I'm no longer so, um, so scared of these situations. It's almost like it's part of the journey. Mm. What profound and amazing insights. That was a beautiful, the last minute was just pure gold of this. Um, I, I love that. And also that not having that fear of failure is such a valuable skill to have. Or rather, maybe just reframing what failure is in a much more manageable term so that you realize at its essence, there is nothing to truly be afraid of because you can pick up the pieces. There's always that next chapter, regardless of what this chapter does. I think that's an amazing forever. So, I mean, I right. think the biggest, the biggest worry that I would have about myself is that I don't make the most out of, you know, the, the years I have. Right. Yeah. So. 
I, I love it. And I completely agree with every single word. At the very, 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 very beginning of this talk, you mentioned that there were certain problems that uh, you wanted to solve. And it seems to me like you've spent your life solving those problems in one form or another. What are the problems that you see yourself solving now or how do you relate what you're doing to the bigger picture maybe not just physical product development or physical engineering but what are some of these larger uh, societal or humanitarian problems that you see yourself as solving or wanting to solve yeah i mean i think there's there's a number of things that worry me today and mm. i'm a, i'm an optimist yeah so mm. that they worry me i mean first of all i think um uh, people have stopped trying to find common ground and try to position themselves almost um, as a contrarian, you know, as as a default. You know, so 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 people people try to find a reason why the other guy is wrong and they are right, and. You know, this is this is on a societal level. I mean, look at you know parties. You know, it's very extreme in the United States where you have two Absolutely. parties only that basically have to differentiate themselves so dramatically that there's almost no common ground anymore. Because the moment you have common ground, I mean, there's no reason to vote for you because you could just as well vote for the other guys. So you have to basically tell that the other guys are absolute evil. And uh, you're the good ones. And, of course, every side says the same thing. Um, but, you know, something like that is almost everywhere in, in the world right now. And it's, it's on society as well. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think during COVID, uh, you saw a lot of people who, you know, went into extremes on both sides of the spectrum. So this is something that worries me, especially also in the context of geopolitics with China and the United States. You know, I don't think China is evil or the United States is evil. You know, I think they're all humans. I mean, um, there was this great uh, sting song, you know, Russians, you know, and uh, where he says uh, the Russians love their children too. You know, so, you know, there are a lot of terrible things that happen in the world, but, uh, you know, we have to find common ground, you know, otherwise we're headed towards you know, um, massive disputes and disputes between countries are usually mean war. You know, this is concretely one of the most worrying things to me. Sure. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I like to be here is because it's it's neutral ground. You know, most people don't know anything about Dubai and the United Arab Emirates, but it's kind of the Switzerland of the Middle East or maybe of the world these days. So they try to have ties to everyone and very often they are the ones who actually broker uh, negotiations between parties that you know don't want to talk to uh, each other anymore. And um, you know I think it's very important. And you know I try to do this personally. I have friends all over the world, and I try to not judge them. You know this is something that um, that always made me a bit sad about. Uh, the German culture, because the Germans Germans are traditionally very judgmental. They know very well what is wrong and what is right, and there's absolutely no gray area in between. And, uh, you know, the funny thing, it flips around a lot. So, yeah. But um, I think um, this is one part, and the only way we can solve that is by traveling, 
to Agreed. places that you would usually not travel to, you know, um, uh, all around the world. You know, I invite everybody to visit, uh, for example, the United Arab Emirates. You know, people lump it together with Iran and Iraq and, you know, all of these countries, you know, that uh, maybe you don't want to travel to. You know, um, it's a wonderful region, you know, but also travel to China, travel to other places. I mean, and see how it really is. And you will find... Yeah, there's humans living there, and it's very interesting yeah. things you learn, and you know what stories they tell about how they perceive you know the world. Uh, very, very interesting. So there are this great is people everywhere. One. Yeah. Um, number two, I mean, very concretely, I, I think uh, everybody's worried about climate change and uh, loss of biodiversity and these kinds of things. You know, so uh, fossil fuels have been amazing for. Humanity. Without fossil fuels, we would not be having this conversation. We would not live in the world that no. we live in. Uh, well, we had to have to get off fossil fuels. We have to be smart about how we use energy. We use, have to use different kinds of energy. So there we are in the physical world. Yeah. And there I see the biggest challenge for engineering. If you look at the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, you know, 17 goals, at least 15 of these are full of engineering challenges. If we don't accelerate engineering, we're not going to solve it. So this is why I'm focusing on that. Because I think personally for me as a software person, accelerating engineering is the biggest lever I can pull. If I can make a difference on that basic level, it lifts so many other fields upwards that I think we have a shot. Now, my biggest competitor, my biggest problem is inertia. So we are proposing that um, engineers need to learn how to code instead of clicking on buttons and drawing little pictures. They all say, oh my God, your coding is so hard. I say, no, it's not hard. I learned it when I was eight. You know, I wasn't some kind of child prodigy. It's just that people are afraid of things. So, but still, I mean, it's, it's a big ask, you know. I mean, it's like people who were used to using pen and paper and now they have to use a computer. You know, people who used to uh, use a slide rule and now they have to use a, a spreadsheet. You know? So how do you accelerate that without it taking 20, 30 years? Because we don't have these 20, 30 years. So we're trying to focus on young people. So we've open sourced our entire base technology stack because we say, you know, our biggest worry is not that our company is successful. Our biggest worry is that nobody uses this stuff besides us. So, you know, it needs to become a movement. And, uh, you know, we're trying to, to do our best to pull, push this forward. Um, so these are the two big things that I see. One is very hard societal because you have these cycles, right? You have... I mean, you, you have war, and then everybody hates war, and then you have a long time of peace. Everybody forgets. Let's go war. Yeah, exactly. People get aggressive again. And, you know, historically, people have not been good at, at getting away from this. And it, there's so many things. I mean, if you look at movies, how aggressive they are, you know, video games, how aggressive they are. I'm not saying it's that quite a lot. they yeah. caused it. It's just a, a reflection of society, what we spend our time with, you know, killing yeah, people. Quite extreme. Uh, so 
it's it's I hate that. And but the other thing I can I can see is easier solved because you know I mean somebody invented the iPhone and all of a sudden you know a few years later everybody had a piece of glass in their hand. So technology is faster than societal changes. And I think one of the things that will help us a lot is uh, space exploration. Because um, it um, gives people something to aspire to. Because this is a, one of the, the biggest challenges that I see is that young people see the world as going in the wrong direction and downwards and everybody tells them oh and it's gonna be so hard and it's gonna be so bad and you know you're gonna have to constrain yourself and you know everything is like really bad this is not how you inspire people to do something about it but if you say hey there's a path forward you know we can do amazing things you know and you know hey let's hey we have, have people landing on the moon and you know exploring the solar system and we have a space station and there's this awesome stuff And it will help us develop these things that we actually need on Earth. So I, I think this makes me very hopeful because we see a lot of momentum there. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting that you've been able to tie your company mission to these much broader uh, goals, such as the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or realizing that this is your path towards achieving that. Um, one of the things that I would love to talk about before we end is since you have started a, a company with your partner, and it's just the two of you. Um, how has that experience been? Do you find the combination of those things to be particularly fulfilling? Is it something that you enjoy more? Do you have ambition to grow that into an 80-person company like your previous venture? Or do you want to keep it small? I'm just kind of curious how you feel about that these days. Yeah, I mean, I mean first of all, I mean, it's for me, it's a dream come true. You know, because um, I think most people... Most people, uh, when they are together with their partner, they, they, they lead very separate lives and they can't really talk about the things that they experience because the other person cannot relate. Even if both people, if, if, if man and woman both are um, working in fulfilling jobs, you know, there's usually not that many touch points. And so it limits what you can actually experience together. And we, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's like entire weeks where we spend basically 24 hours together. You know, it's like, I mean, you have to have the right partner to, to do that. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, my God, I don't want that. But it says something about your partnership as well, right? So for me, it's, it's a dream come true. You know, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's very little separation between personal life and, and work life and um Uh, we're both passionate about this particular subject. We have very complementary uh, skill sets. So uh, uh, Josephine, my partner, is, is an aerospace engineer. So she actually builds these crazy things, whereas I'm, you know, the guy who builds like the, the base software stack, you know, and and you know uh, works more on the strategic level. So it's, it's super complementary. Um, so it's 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 perfect for us and you know that obviously leads to the question you know, how do you grow that because the moment you hire one more person you know first of all the i mean <laughs> very effective right you know she needs something from me to just yeah you know, look over the screen and no say, bs hey. yeah <laughs> 
and um, vice versa. So um, you know the the problem with larger companies is obviously communication and you know, uh, coherence and you know, making sure you're still aligned on the same goal. And so yeah. what we're trying to do right now is we basically we work with our customers in such a way that we build something for them and then we give them the source code to continue the path. So we're kind of growing through our customers. So we can focus on the things that actually interest us and we can focus on the phase that we're interested in. So not the like the last 5% where there's lots of niggling and stuff, but actually building the big picture and building the foundation. So this has worked very well, but of course, you know, it, it doesn't scale beyond you know, the two of us. Interestingly enough, though, you know, a lot of the new software startups and AI startups, they have very few people. So I think Midjourney has like 15 people, one five or something like that. So and they're yeah. a world-class company, you know, well, I don't know how many customers, and they are you know, a small team that fit into you know, one living room. So maybe you can keep it small. You know, I have no ambition to build like a 10,000-person company. I worked in a 10,000-person company at Adobe, and they bought my company. And it was fun in a way. You know, I had teams all over yeah. the planet. You know, was traveling all the time. Got to experience lots of different world cultures. But uh, it's very hard to, you know, get anything moving. And uh, you know, you have a lot of lost in translation kind of things. Mm -hmm. So small is beautiful, and small these days can have a big impact. And so far, the two of us. Are having actually quite a significant impact, which makes me hopeful that you know maybe for a while we can do it exactly like that. Because again, you know, it's 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 a lot of fun. That's incredible. Well, the reason why I asked is because I've done a similar thing. So I have a marketing agency. Uh, we do digital products and websites and all of that. And uh, it's co-founder is my wife, and so we work together. Yeah. And sometimes that feels like a huge risk because you're not diversifying and you think, well, if, if our company uh, fails, then we both fail because it's not like she's a teacher and I'm, uh, you know, so sometimes it feels like a risk, but other times it feels like the best thing in the world. And I, I think we're also blessed to have a relationship where it feels totally safe and, uh, and it's not, not a risk. I mean, I think that it's actually quite risky to diversify hmm. because now you're no longer focused on one thing. Mm. And now you're spreading yourself thin, and now you're distracted by you know all the other things, and and there's this small voice in your head that says, oh, maybe it fails. So there's this famous thing. I don't even know if it's true, but you know all the startup, you know, startup founders always hear that you know about Cortez, you know, who upon reaching the new world burned his ships. So that the only path forward, right. so they could only go right. through the jungle. And in a way, that's that's what you have to do. I mean, mm. in a way, if you say, "Oh, but I also have this and I have that," and you know, I mean, I always put my entire money into my new thing. Mm. And you know, this is risky because, you know, quite frankly, I mean, it has always depleted also my resource before it went up again. Mm. So um, you're all, all of a sudden back from, oh, I have a very comfortable life and I could buy whatever I want to hell, how do we survive the next month? Yeah. Mm. But it's okay. You know, I mean, if you're comfortable with not, I mean, there's this, these people who have all these complicated lives with servants and cars and, you know, complicated mm. real estate agreements and, mm. 
I mean, I want, I mean, this is another thing that I learned. I want very few physical things in my life. I'm the same. There's such a distraction. It's unbelievable yes. because you're constantly worried about this thing and that thing breaks and now you have to hide. I mean, and then, you know, when I talk to people who have a lot of things, they say, yeah, but I have, you know, my, my office manager and this guy and that guy. And then now you have to, you have to, an entire staff to take care of. And, you know, these people get sick and they have demand and they need a raise and they need to get paid. And this is, so your life all of a sudden, I, I honestly have no idea when these people actually do original work because they're so busy just maintaining their current life that mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't know how to do this. So, mm. you know, we, we live very simply and uh, have a lot of freedom because of that. That's, that's so great. And that's something that I definitely uh, aspire to because I am in a service-based business. My, the scaling of my company is directly proportional to the amount of staff that I have, right? Because yeah. I can't have an eight-person team making something that's like a software product. When I'm serving clients, each new client means that I have to have more staff. Um, so yeah. dealing, you know, I have more staff than, uh, from the sound of it, mid journey, <laughs> so I have more people work and it is quite a headache. And of course, part of me desires to find, um, yeah, to find a, a type of, of business where that's not the case, but my path seems to have led this way. So it's, it, it is interesting. And, and like you said, there are positive aspects. Of course, the people and the energy that you get from having a team is great. Yeah. But yeah. uh, there is something definitely to be said for the way that you have approached things too. Yeah, I did different things at different times in my life. And, uh, you know, right now this feels very much what I want to do. Mm. And it is hyper-efficient, but it requires, you know, I mean, I can wear many, many hats. You know, uh, Josephine, my partner, can wear many, many hats. So you would need to be generalists in order to do that. You know, if, if you like to focus on one aspect of things and hate the other aspects, well, you need, you need other people to take care of this. And so there's nothing wrong or right. I think there's, there's one thing that I realized about how I want to work. Um, I think even for me, for a large part of my life, I felt like I had to do things in a certain way. And um, it wasn't always what I enjoyed. So, for example, I don't enjoy being a manager. I don't enjoy dealing with people issues all the time and these kinds of things. I actually enjoy doing the work. And um, I think everybody needs to look at what they actually enjoy, yeah? not, not what other people expect of you and what, what the title, you know, blah, 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 and your prestige. What do you actually look forward when you get up? And do you actually enjoy the work? I mean, of course, there are things that are not always fun, right? I mean, yeah. they're part of it. Yeah. But on average, on average, do you really enjoy what you do? And if you do, fantastic. If you don't, then make a change. Well, I was going to ask you for parting words of wisdom, but I feel like you just did it on your own anyways. Um, that was a great summary for anybody who's been listening to this point. 
Well, as we wrap things up here, um, where can people find? And again, I would highly encourage them to check out the work because it is out of this world and it has a very sci-fi quality to it. Some of the designs that you've posted on your website and on your galleries are just outrageous and fascinating and perplexing. So where can they find you? Where can they learn more? Where can they um, also maybe contribute or become a part of these things like you said? Yeah, so our company's name is Leap71. If you Google it, you will find us, you know, leap71.com. And uh, my personal website is at uh, linlin.ae. And for United Arab Emirates, you know, this is home. And, uh, you know, our work is, is up on GitHub, you know, so on GitHub, Leap71. You know, if you want to contribute contribute to our work that would be amazing it's all open source you can use it forever whatever you want we're happy to help and um, yeah we hope that more people will become part of the journey because you know it has the potential to fundamentally accelerate how we invent new things and this is i think what we absolutely need right now we need to invent new things and these inventions they will create an awesome future for us, but somebody needs to do it. it does, it's not automatic. So this is, this is one of the most important things that I also learned. If you don't do it, maybe nobody does it. Well, I knew before we sat down that this was going to be a fascinating chat and your story did not disappoint. It absolutely is a remarkable tale. And I love the way that you approached things and the way that you continue to approach things. I love your mindset. It's something that resonates very deeply with me. I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to, I don't want to say gamble, but that you're willing to invest in each new successive adventure and that you're not just clinging to stability or you're not just clinging to what you gained and that each time you're willing to put it on the line because your North Star is something fundamentally different than what is the life of the most luxury or comfort for myself, which is a story that I'm not as interested in. I'll put it to you that way. <laughs> I'm not that I care less about that. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your awesome insight and wisdom. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Ross, thank you so much for, for having me and, uh, you know, love your podcast. All right. We got a fan. Um, and with that, the official podcast is over. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast. I can't thank you enough for making it to the end of this episode. If I could give you a gold star, I would. Just pretend that I'm sticking one on your forehead right now. Okay, that got a little creepier than I thought it would be. But in any case, if you've made it this far, that means you're a supporter of at least one episode. Have you listened to some of the others? Have you checked out some of the back catalog of amazing guests who are building a better future and doing just outrageous stuff? Or have you considered leaving a nice review or sharing an episode with your social platform to help the show grow? Anything you can do to be a part of the show would be great. And of course, if you have guest recommendations who are truly building a new planet for us all in a better way, send them on through. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.